Hello, my name is Caitlin, and I am going to be reading Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 this morning. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we need that reminder again and again and again that your mercy is more, that you are a God slow to anger, but filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. We need that reminder today that we would, we would sense your smile, not because we have uh, knocked it out of the park, not because we have proven ourselves to you, but because you have simply chosen to set your love and your affection on us. So would we bask in that this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, please have a seat. My name's Taylor Reevely. It's good to be here with you this morning again. And um, this morning is a new morning because yesterday we finished the soccer season. <laughs> Cheers. We have three soccer players that were on one team here in the same room. And like most youth sports, um, the season concludes with a party, which was held across the parking lot at Abby's Pizza. And like most youth sports, um, all the players were given a, a medal by the coaches. And w why were they given a medal, you would be fair to ask. Because we played a sport where we did not keep score. And so we did not win any games. We didn't lose any, but we didn't. And I think what's, I just confess, okay, this is, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to like get really excited about meriting and giving an award to, to, I don't, I, to, to our players, <laughs> who I love. And here, I think, is where it kind of comes to a head. Because there were some players that scored more goals than other players. They probably should have gotten a medal more than the other players. But what happened when we gave a medal to each player on the team was this little part of me died inside that said, you have to earn it to deserve it. And part of me realized, maybe there's just something in saying we love you. That's enough of a reward in itself. And it's a reward that isn't earned, and it's a reward that is actually equal and shared amongst the whole team. What we're doing this morning is we're picking up our study in Matthew's Gospel. And in the discussion about rewards and the way of being in the world, we come across this passage now that will shock us because it is not fair. So if, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, we're going to pick up in the last verse of Matthew 19. And on every page so far, Matthew has highlighted for us, Jesus intended there would be this new way of being in the kingdom of heaven that looks upside down in contrast to the world. In this new way of being humans, particularly the losers and the underdogs in this world's economy, flourish as they are made whole in Christ. 
In the last couple of weeks, Jesus has had several really radical conversations that reshape our expectations about what the kingdom of heaven is like, particularly as it regards merit and reward. So maybe you thought you had to clean yourself up in order to come to Jesus and enter the kingdom of heaven. Wrong. Jesus holds up these little children utterly in need and says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Maybe you thought you needed to do all the right things and be perfect to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wrong. A rich young man comes to Jesus having kept the whole letter of the law, yet still saying, what do I lack? Maybe you thought you could have a nice, comfortable, happy life and also enter the kingdom of heaven. Wrong. That same rich young man looks at his possessions and leaves Jesus with great sorrow because he had great possessions. He did not get Jesus. And then last week, Peter responded to that rich young man's fate by asking Jesus a question. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And last week, Jesus offered an, a response that I, I believe was an assurance. You will be rewarded. An assurance that was dependent on the surety of the glory of Christ. When Christ sits on his throne, you too will sit on a throne. But this morning, we pick up the second part of Jesus' response, which I think he's explaining further that statement, the, last will be, the first will be last and the last first. And he adds clarity to what he means. And in his response this morning, we'll hear a hint of a warning. Okay, there was assurance last week and there is a warning coupled in that assurance this week. Because there is within each of us a self-interested impulse. A self-oriented impulse that, is, that wants to make sure that we get compensated fairly in the end. So if you're in your Bibles in Matthew 19, please jump in with me at the very last verse and we will read this story as Jesus continues his response. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard, and agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, in the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last 
but they worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now this is our first parable here since we joined the journey through Matthew's gospel here in Oregon City. So to to interpret, to make sense of a parable, we must keep in mind that it is a figure, it it is not a literal story, okay? So we're not gonna analyze it and try to figure out with some kind of code and unlock its meaning. We're going to understand that this story is like the kingdom of heaven. And the point that it's clearly trying to make is bookend, are the bookends of the parable. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Okay, now, we, we probably need some help understanding what that means. And so the story helps us understand that. And, and this is what I understand to be the aim of the parable. God is generous beyond what is fair. God is generous beyond what is fair. So certainly he does what is just, right, or fair, but his generosity exceeds that. Now I suggest that's the main point of this parable because the entire story hinges on the erratic behavior of this master on payday. At the end of the day, he pays those who were hired last first and those who were hired first last. And it is that eccentricity that triggers the response of those first workers. Now, we need that unexpected reversal to take place in this parable because it's the setup for the tension that the disciples are to feel as they enter and belong in the kingdom of heaven. We're supposed to notice that in this upside-down kingdom is actually right-side-up. In particularly, Jesus is writing the expectation of the twelve that seems implicit in Peter's question, that they would be treated with greater reward in the kingdom than a latecomer who just eked in. And it is this dissolution of merit and self-interested fairness that is at the bullseye of Jesus' teaching. Now certainly, to be treated fairly is a base human desire, right? If you think back to your earliest childhood memory, it was probably a moment that you, desert, that you desired to be treated fairly and you weren't. And that memory is probably a poignant one. Now, I have such a memory. I think back to a time when I was about 10 years old and my grandpa had just given me some money for helping with some chores around his ranch. And he hadn't given my sisters any money because they hadn't helped with any chores. Now, on the road trip home, uh, it was a particularly hot summer in eastern Montana. And by particularly hot, I mean excruciatingly hot. And it was exacerbated by the fact that we were 
going 85 miles an hour down the highway in the Dodge Grand Caravan with the wood panel sides and the red velvet seats before air conditioning was around, hoping that there was a cross breeze that would make its way in through the popped up back windows in the minivan. I distinctly remember laying on the ground between the back seats because there was shade there. It was that hot. And when we rolled into the gas station, I had my, my pocket was just on fire with the 20 bucks that my grandpa had just paid me. And I was going to go solve my problem and relieve my pain with a cup of ice and some syrupy drink inside of it. And so I bolted out of the car. So I'm, I'm doing this. I got money. I'm... I'm living high right now. And so I go get my drink, and I come back out to the car a few minutes later, and my sisters had cups of ice with the syrupy drink in it, too. Where did it... Dad, what are you thinking? This drink cost me 79 cents. I spent 10% of my year's earnings to buy it, and Dad... You could just get, you just bought one for them? And I remember at that moment him saying, if you had only asked, if you had just waited, if you had been patient, and I remember just balking at the uh, unfairness of it. Now, those memories of being treated unfairly are burned in our minds because there is an aid in our nature, a desire, a sense of justice. In that sense of justice, we have inexplicably linked to our understanding of fairness. To treat someone fairly is to treat them equal. All things being equal, all people receive the same. But here's the problem with our human understanding of fairness. All people aren't equal. All things aren't actually equal. Some people do actually deserve more. I did chores for a week. I deserve more. I scored more than half of our team's soccer goals. I deserve more. And so our sense of fairness is intrinsically linked to merit. We pay you more because you do more. We pay you less because you do less. You get a shinier trophy because you did better. You get a duller trophy because you did worse. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about inequality on the grounds of race or sex or otherwise. We have to be able to say in those cases, all things are equal because we see in each person the dignity and value regardless of their color of skin. And we're right to fight for justice and equality there. But our, our right desire for what is just is often expressed through a desire for fairness that is rooted in merit. That's my problem with awards at soccer parties. And what Jesus is communicating in this parable, I believe, is that God is generous beyond what is fair. What is happening here is that the master does not offer an hourly wage, but a day wage. And some worked all day in the heat. And some worked an hour in the cool of the day but they got paid the same amount. And that's a problem. I got a problem with that. Do you have a problem with that? Like kind of a big problem. Because if you're going to be fair, that is not fair. 
And I have to suggest here that human, that fairness is our human standard in our human economy. That people would be treated fairly. Justice, what is right, however, is the kingdom standard. And in this story, we see what is just displayed. The master is 100% just. The first workers do receive exactly what he has promised them. He keeps his end of the bargain. He honors his word. But he is not fair. And he's not fair because there's a different operating principle in the kingdom of heaven than there is in the kingdom of earth. And it is the principle of grace. And grace is not fair. Grace is an unmerited, undeserved gift. And I want to highlight for you then how this story displays God's grace and expects then that disciples would be celebrators of that grace rather than curmudgeons of that grace. Okay, so may we all be celebrators rather than curmudgeons. Okay? The first thing you need to notice here is that God is generous, God is gracious in hiring the laborers. Now if you look, you pay attention here, you would notice that the master of the house of the vineyard took it upon himself to go to the marketplace where the day laborers were waiting for someone to hire them. He woke up early and went down to the place where the workers would have been waiting for an assignment. Now, culturally, we don't witness that often in our place. But it would have been common for people without steady jobs to, to agree to meet at a particular place at a particular time and hope, pray, that someone would come along that would hire them for the day. So that someone would relieve them of their financial burden by allowing them to work so that at night they might feast. Some days they get lucky. Some days not so much. Now catch it. The theme that's been prominent now for the last couple weeks. This is a utterly dependent position. To show up and hope. To show up and pray. To show up without a contract, without an agreement, without any worth or merit, and to say, I hope someone comes. I hope my family eats today. This is how it would have been at dawn for these first workers that are hired. You can almost picture how routine this experience is. They go down, they wait. They go down again the next day, and they wait. And he, un, remarkably, Someone comes along and says, Hugh, I need you. I need you to come work for me. I'll pay you going rate, a fair wage, a denarius. Can you imagine their joy at the fact that they just got hired? Now, we don't, we don't know what they were hired to do. We don't know if they were any good at what they were hired to do. But they were first. And apparently, the owner of the vineyard wanted more help. Did he need more? Were they just slow workers? I've got all kinds of questions about the scenario here because it just doesn't make sense. And we don't know. But apparently, he was willing to go down repeatedly back to this marketplace again and again to find more who were waiting for work. Each time, he found more workers that were sitting, waiting, hoping that they would be chosen, that they would, that they would get the call utterly dependent on the kindness 
and generosity of some farmer who might see fit to hire them. And when the master of the house comes to the marketplace at the 11th hour, okay, so these are the last ones, what, this, that is exactly what these workers say. They're, they're just hopeful is all they've got. And by the 11th hour, they're starting to lose hope. In verse 6, it says, He said to them, Why do you stand idle all day? What are you doing? And he said to him, Well, because no one's hired us. In other words, we don't exactly want to be here. We really would like to work and make our life count and feed our family. But we're here because nobody's invited us. Now we have to pause to consider God's generosity here. Clearly the master of the house in this story is God. And clearly he of his own will and desire keeps going back to find more workers, more people to belong in the kingdom of heaven. And implicit in this return to find more workers is that reality. God is generous. No laborer has earned that right. He was obligated to none of them. None of them have proved their merit. None of them deserved a chance. But God invites them nonetheless. And you can imagine, okay, the first workers, they must have been elated, Right? The late workers must have been astonished. And I'm pretty sure that those who were hired first were also happy that more helpers were coming because many hands make light work and now they're going to get the same pay and have to do half the work. Probably also the master was elated, delighted that there were more workers yet to be found willing to work. And this is at least the first reality we're celebrating, that the king is active in inviting people into the kingdom. God is generous in hiring and enlisting those workers. And my question continues then. Do you rejoice in his return to the marketplace again and again? Are you aligned with the king's generosity to include many others? Are you, are you even participating with the king in this acquisition of newcomers? Are you inviting them to join, not, not just New Life Church Oregon City, but the kingdom of heaven, where they will flourish and thrive? Well, in this invitation to work, God demonstrates his generosity, but his generosity, his grace, continues, okay? Because he treats then each of these hired hands justly. God is generous and just in paying the laborers. Well, I've already directed your attention to the hinge on which this story turns, the reversal of the order of payment. In this reversal, the master of the field writes the check to those hired most recently and ends with those hired first. And this is where we need our gut check. Because here at the heart of the story, the workers who join at the 11th hour are paid the same wage as those who worked from the beginning and the 3rd, 6th, and ninth hours. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is where we've got a bit of a problem. So we didn't have a problem with workers joining the effort late. It just made our job easier. But we do have a problem with them receiving equal treatment. 
And the expectation of these early workers is explicit on payday in the story. In verse 9, when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. In the story, those hired first are then likewise paid a denarius, that pre-approved, pre-arranged, pre-agreed upon reward for their work. And here's the question. Are they right to expect more? Are they right to even feel jealousy that those who worked only one hour in the shade got equal treatment as those who had burned their backs all day? Yes, they're right to feel this way. If, if merit is the basis of the reward, if merit is the basis of their value, looking purely at merit, the master of his house did not treat his employees fairly, but did he treat them justly? Did he do what was right? Yes, he kept his word to each one of his employees, to the ounce. And that's revealed in this conversation with one of those workers toward the end in verse 13. Friend, he explains himself, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The answer is yes. Take then what belongs to you and go. I choose, I choose of my own will. To give to this last worker as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Will you celebrate this generosity or will you be a curmudgeon about God's generosity? And what we need to see in this story is that to all who have been hired, justice has been upheld. God has done and will do what is right without question, to everyone. And that is the assurance that Jesus has just offered to Peter. Trust me. Trust me. It will work out in the end. God's justice secures it. Nobody in the kingdom of heaven has been overlooked. Nobody in the kingdom has been shorted or slighted. But then, what about those latecomers? What about the workers that didn't sweat? What about those newcomers to the faith who live a lifestyle that you don't agree with? What about those who are literally actually younger than you and younger in the faith? You can celebrate God's generosity in particular because He's generous beyond what is fair. So justice is the baseline standard in the kingdom of heaven. God will be just. He will do what is right. He will at least be just. But the story is illustrating that He will be more than just because God aims to be generous. What this means is that the kingdom of heaven does not operate in the same way that the kingdoms of earth operate. It means that there's no meritocracy in the kingdom of heaven. If you get hired, it's grace. If you get paid, it's grace. It's all grace. 
I think there's two underlying themes then here that we need to see that they're invisible in the story, but they are against that grace. And that is what Jesus is tearing down here. The first is that merit is opposed to grace. And consequently, fairness, as, uh, as we conceive it, is opposed to grace. In a system where the first are first and the last are last, there's no grace. In a fair world where merit achieves greater reward and failure is punished, there's no grace. And these hired hands, they knew there was a discrepancy in merit. And they expected the king of the kingdom to operate in accord with the kingdom of the world. And when he did not, they were confronted by really the painful reality of grace. In the kingdom of heaven, those who merit nothing are given everything. Those who merit everything are given exactly what They are promised exactly what is just. And in that sense, justice is the baseline, but grace is the goal. So merit is opposed to grace because we grate against it. The second thing that's opposed is self-interest. Peter's question, what then will we have? I even emphasize the we. Hints at self-interest, a concern about self. And then the first workers in the story demonstrate that self-interest in their imposition for greater reward. And what I mean by self-interest is a self-centered, self-regard that thinks of itself higher than it ought and more often than it ought. And you see that demonstrated by these hard workers in the story, especially when they begin to extrapolate the reward that they should receive or their value relative to others. Now look, the scriptures warn against this kind of comparison in the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. In the kingdom of heaven, those who compare themselves to one another are the fools. And the scriptures continue in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Let the one then who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What this means is that it does not matter in the end how highly you regard yourself in relation to others. It matters preeminently how highly God regards you. Well, there's also a third, and it's the opposite of self-interest, and that is self-loathing. And self-loathing is also opposed to grace. We haven't talked much about those who were hired at the 11th hour. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? You show up, well, you've waited all day, you get a call, you're like, figuring out how to work in the vineyard. These guys have been at it all day. They're showing you how to do it. Payday comes. The end of the day draws near. And you kind of maybe sulk over to the master, hoping for the pennies that are the portion, an appropriate portion, you hope, of the whole day's wage. There's, best not get my hopes up. 
probably won't work out. Probably not worth it. There's, there's no way. There's no way he would be generous with, my, with me. I have, I have done nothing. And these workers, you have to consider that they would have later reflected, we, why were we so down all day? Down on the, the smallness of our work, the smallness of our contribution, the smallness of our value. We should have been dancing all day because we were given an abundance of grace. And friends, this is, this is really, really, really good news. What's happening in the story here? Because God values you. You matter to Him. And your worth is not defined by your merit. Your identity is not derived from your performance. Your worth is defined simply and securely by God's choice to set His love on you. Now, I still remember a, a simple liturgy that my dad used with me when I was a child that I used with my girls. Uh, maybe I'll ask them a question. Maybe they'll answer me. Hey, Cedar and Eden, who loves you? Who loves you? Who loves you? Words. Daddy. Um, a lot or a little bit? Today or tomorrow? Well, today and tomorrow, right? Is there anything that you could do that would make me love you any less? Is there anything you could do that would make me love you any more? No? That is a picture, a story of grace. I'm aiming at it imperfectly. And God is the standard here. To be absolutely certain, without a doubt, that you are loved, not because of yourself, but in spite of yourself. This is what God makes clear to his people, Israel, which Caitlin referred to a moment ago in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because they were worthy or intelligent or smart or beautiful or strong that God was motivated to love them. He had simply chosen to set his love on them without regard to any of those things. His love is at the same time then merciful and it is just. And because of that, there's nothing that you could do that would make him love you anymore because merciful love can't increase. And there's nothing you could do that would make him love you any less because just love cannot decrease. And for us to flourish in the kingdom of heaven, we will need to wrap our minds around that reality and it is almost impossible because we do not have a framework for it in this life a kind of flourishing, a kind of freedom where we can think of ourselves no higher than we ought and no lower than we ought, but simply think of ourselves as less. We don't need to fight for our rights, for our preferential treatment, because God has already set himself in mercy and justice to love us. And that is generosity enough. I mentioned there's three things that are opposed to grace. Merit, self-interest, and self-loathing. But there are two things that facilitate grace, that highlight grace. So I want to close by calling you to these. You can facilitate the gift and experience of grace by depending 
on grace. The story is truly a fitting conclusion to chapter 19. You can throw it all away and follow hard after Christ. You can sell all your possessions. You can leave houses and family and lands to follow Christ. You can choose a life of singleness in order to follow Christ, and you will find grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Grace in this life, grace in your reward. And so the encouragement this morning is to try it on. To try it on. To put it to the test. To actually show up and say, I'm dependent. I'm in need here. I really need grace. I really need Jesus to do something for me that I can't do for myself. Come to him empty-handed and just see what grace is like. The second thing you can do to facilitate the celebration of grace is, well, you can celebrate it. You can recognize it and rejoice in it. We have to add an implied uh, hypothetical conclusion to the story, okay? What if those first workers celebrated the master's kindness instead of begrudging it toward those who were hired at the 11th hour? What, What would happen? How would the story end? How delighted would those first workers be if they chose to be celebrating the generosity of the master? Man, he did it again. They would be ecstatic. How delighted would the master be? Oh, his heart would be overflowing with generosity. His heart would swell at their delight. How delighted then would the other workers who were hired later be. You know they walked to the, pay, to the pay booth with their head down, feeling less than, less worthy, less able. And here they would instead feel known, loved, and valued by their peers in the same manner, really, that the master knew, valued, and loved them. Grace and its celebration is what makes human flourishing a reality in this life and forever in the life to come. And by God's help, we will be a grace-saturated church. The culture of grace, it starts really with each one of us recognizing and admitting our need. And it ends with us celebrating the kindness of God to each and every one of us, especially as those who are even now waiting in the marketplace for someone to hire them. They join in the work and share in the fullness of the reward. So would you join me in praying toward that end? Because we again are dependent on the Lord's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your kindness, your generosity, your grace to us, it changes everything. It certainly leads us to repentance as the scriptures say, Repentance for all the times that we have spurned your grace or belittled it. And that repentance then leads us to celebration, marveling that any of us at any hour would be called. Lord, would this church here on the hill be an outpost of your kingdom in that it just reeks of grace? Would that upside-down way of being be our right-side-up reality? as we follow Jesus together. Bring many more to yourself, we pray in your name. Amen.
Please stand together as we now continue and respond by singing.